Would you turn to uh, Mark 13? And we'll be going through verses 26 and 27 today. Mark 13, 26, 27. We are going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse. And um, I'll start reading, but when I read, I'll be reading from verse 24 um, because it's just the whole paragraph, and it's good to read the paragraph from 24 to 27 so that we read it in context. And I do want to let you know from the start that we will be going uh, through several passages in the Scripture to and fro from the Old Testament and all the way to the New Revelation to the end time uh, book. So uh, keep that in mind. We read verse 24, and it says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the furthest end of the earth to the furthest end of heaven. This is the second coming of Christ. This is it. This is the apex of human history, the crescendo of redemption story. This is the conclusion, the end of this age. The coming of Jesus Christ is the last page of the last chapter of this world as we know it. God has left the best for last. Among all doctrines, this second coming of Christ is ahead of the pack. It is the grand finale, the consummation of all of God's promises, the fulfillment of all of God's covenant, the second coming of Christ. It is not an unimportant subject. It is not a secondary. No, it is critical to our faith. When we study this glorious event, it is not like we're adding some herbs and spices to, so that to add flavor to our belief and life and worship. No. This is the meat and potato of Christian living. Everything points to the second coming of Christ. All the biblical truth, they find their culmination, their completion in this truth. All the way from creation, the fall, Israel, the birth of Christ, His death, His ascension, the Pentecost, the church, everything. And so to trivialize the significance of this event, is like to pour cold water and to minimize the glorious purpose and all of the events that make up the plan of our salvation. To minimize this event, brothers, it would be like to live a compromised life, a life that would be painted with a slogan, the slogan that says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, brothers, let me give you 
some statistics uh, from the scripture just to know the significance of this event in the word of God. Over 1,800 references appear in the Old Testament and 17 Old Testament books give prominence to the second coming of Christ. Of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are more than 300 references to the second coming of Christ. One out of every, ver- out of every 30 verses. 23 of the 27 New Testament books directly refer to this great event. And finally, for every prophecy on the, old, on the first coming of Christ, there are eight on the second coming of Christ. How significant is this event in God's redemptive plan of history? It is at Jesus' return. All that matters to this age will be accomplished. All rewards would have been given by that time. All the blessings will be distributed. All judgments will be executed. All wrongs will be corrected. And much, much more. If you look around you, you may come to conclude that this world may seem to be like a a wobbling wheel lost its bearing and it's off track and moving into confusion, into blackness and darkness. But make no mistake, every movement in this history is under the sovereign control of our God. And he predetermined that there will be a day where Christ will come back. This world is in a collusion course with the second coming of Christ. This day is in God's divine calendar, and it will not be revoked. And the world may dread this day, but brothers, those of us who are redeemed, we must be eager, awaiting for this day. Let me give you a quote by John Calvin. John Calvin says, quote, Let us not hesitate to await the Lord's coming, not only with longing, also with groaning and sighs as the happiest thing of all he will come to us as redeemer unquote brothers that our hearts not be troubled every breath we take is another breath that pulls us closer to this day let us be comforted every heartbeat is another heartbeat that brings us closer to the second coming of Christ. This day is fast approaching. The outline for today be five points. And we're going to look at the event, this event of the second coming of Christ, as though it is on a stage. Stage of this world, number one. Second, we're going to look at the audience. Who will see the second coming of Christ? Three, the hero of the second coming of Christ. Fourth point, the splendor. We're going to see how this hero will come as he bolts out of heaven. And we're going to see how wonderful his coming will be. And finally, the fifth, 
the rescue mission on this stage as he uses the world as the platform and as he's coming with such a dramatic entrance, we'll see how he would rescue his own people. We start with the stage. Verse 26. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in cloud. Then. Then after what? Well, after verse 24. Verse 24 says, The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And continues on, it says, The stars will be falling from heaven. So the background in this is that the Antichrist will let loose. Deception and false religions will reach its zenith of evil. There will be unrelentless and unmerciful violence against Christians and Jews that will lead to their slaughter. And as wickedness of man will prevail and that will become the flag waved across all nations. And as Satan will claim the earth almost entirely for a period of a three, half, three and a half years. And all of heaven will cry for justice. And there will be a great cosmic disturbance. And what kind of cosmic disturbance? I do want you to turn to Zechariah. I want to have a look at it from the Old Testament just to see how consistent the scripture is with the New Testament. Zechariah 14 verse 6. This is the this will be the cosmic disturbance at that time. Zechariah 14, verse 6. So in that day, Zechariah says, which day? Well, we know from Zechariah 14, if you read in context, it speaks of the day of the Lord or the final coming of Christ. In that day, there will be what? No light. Sun is out. Moon is out. And he continues on and says, the luminaries will dwindle, meaning the bright ones will shrivel up. It will just fade away. It will die. Meaning God will blow off the sun like someone blows into a lit up candle. Just, just like that. And the sun will be darkened. And the moon will be a useless planet. And in verse 7, for it will be a unique day which is known to Yahweh. Of course, it'll be a unique day because no one will understand this day. There's no sun, there is no moon, there is no scientific explanation to describe this day. Then it says, neither day nor night. As we said, sun and moon are out of order now. There's no day nor night. But, but, now here comes the, the exciting part of this day, the apex moment of this day. And it says, it will come about at evening time. So at the end of this day, in the closing time of, of this era, Zechariah tells us in an, no certain terms, he says this, there will be what? Light. What does that mean? Where does this light come from? Now we turn back to Mark 13, our today's passage. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds. So as the universe 
enters into this time of pitch black darkness that can be felt everywhere. And it's kind of like God will turn this universe into a spectacular theater. The angels and the saints in heaven will be watching the show from, from heaven, like we said. And there is that black velvet curtain is rolled down upon the stage of this world. All the lights are off now. And just before the final scene, the question that will be in everyone's mind, who will be able to stand against the wickedness of man? And the cry of every believing soul on earth that will leap out of their heart would be, where is our Christ? Where is his promise? Has he forgotten about us? Who could possibly save us from his bloodshed? And then, and all of the sudden, as Mark says in verse 26, then they will see the Son of Man coming. Midst of this terrifying black, Absolutely dreadful time. Christ will appear. According to Zechariah 14, he will fill the whole heaven with the glory of God. That's the state. And we come to the audience of this day. Who they, when, when Jesus says here in verse 26, then they will see him. Who they? Revelation 1.7 tells us that behold, he is coming with the clouds. Then John in Revelation answers this question for us. He says, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Every eye. Who are they that will see him on that day? First, there will be the redeemed. As you have heard, and we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, there will be persecution. And as the persecution will increase and intensify, the Gospel will be preached. It will be preached by 144,000 Jews at that time. And there will be um, those two people that will descend from heaven. And there will be a supernatural proclamation of the Gospel by an angel that will be flying all around the globe. And so there will be believers from all nations and all tongues out of both Jews and Gentiles. And they won't be killed by the Antichrist. They won't die by earthquakes or famines. They will be protected by God. And it's those redeemed. They will see Him and in seeing Him, they will rejoice. Second, there will be the Antichrist along with his followers and all those who willfully rejected Christ and never ever wanted to come all the way to Christ for salvation. They will be there. They will be there with absolute terror in that day. Every eye will place 
its full focus on Jesus Christ on that day. The audience, all kinds of people. There will be a third group. Those who have not yet come to Christ and just before the coming of Christ, they will cry out to him to save them. They will be there. Uh, there will also be there those false converts, those who thought all their lives that they were Christians, but in reality they were not. They have always thought that they, because they pray, because they come to church, because they attend Evangelism Day, because they know the gospel and they can know it, but they can rehearse it back to front. They think that they were born again, but in reality, God knows their hearts and they were never converted in the first place. They will be there on that day. Every eye will see. Number three, the hero of that day. It's Christ. Who is this Christ that everyone, every eye, will see? It says, the Son of Man coming in clouds. Now, if you read this carefully in your, in your Bible, if you have a Nasby Bible, you will see that are all capitals. That's because it's a quote taken from Daniel 7. So can I just, would I ask you to turn to um, Daniel 7, please? We're reading from verse 13. Because Daniel has been teleported in his vision to this day, and he has seen this Son of Man in the clouds, and we want to see what Daniel saw. So with fear and trembling, ask you to fix your eyes upon who this Son of Man really is that will be coming in the cloud. Daniel 7, verse 13. And Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man, was coming. Here is the Son of Man. Here is the Savior of the world, the hero, the champion of our souls, the warrior of our faith. And it says about this Son of Man, He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. Now, I believe that this has already taken place at the ascension of Jesus, when Jesus rose to the uh, right hand of the Father, and it was his official ceremony for his coronation. And in verse 14, it says this, And to him, as to the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. The Son of Man is a mighty king. He's a glorious king. He rules with absolute authority and with absolute power. How do we know that? We'll continue reading. Who is it that will be under him? That all the peoples 
all the peoples, includes you. That includes all kings, all rulers, all presidents, right? All prime ministers, all premiers, all dictators, everyone. It says that all peoples, nations, and men of every language, what are they going to do? Might serve him. Serve him. This is what Pharaoh was after, right? This is what Nebuchadnezzar was covering. All the kings, all rulers of the, this earth were thirsty for power and longed for people to serve them. But it's only granted to the Son of God. Now check out this. This is beautiful. It says, His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. Where are the mighty kings of old? We read in history, Alexander the Great or Adolf Hitler or Herod the King. Where are they? They're gone. They died. They had their puny moment. And now they're buried. So will there be even the greatest champions. Every man, no matter how strong he is, his dominion is like the wind of the air. Or like it says, Solomon says, vanity or vanity. So bubble, literally speaking. Nothing. Of no existence. And the greatest of us will grow weak, will die. And a hundred years later, all will be forgotten. Who was the richest man a hundred years ago? Who was the strongest man a hundred years ago? Who? Who was the most knowledgeable man 50 years ago? What happened to him? Where is he? I'll tell you where he is, in a graveyard. And his bones turned into dust. But this son of man, it says his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, like John said to us. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. You see, even though Jesus already enthroned as king of all ages, but for now, and just for a little while, he's letting Satan run the show. Of course, with restricted access, restricted power. Jesus hasn't yet fully exercised all his rights over his earthly kingdom. But the fulfillment of this, it's going to wait till his second coming. So Jesus now, he rules and reigns over the universe from heaven. But in his second coming, when he comes down, he will administer direct authority over all the affairs of this world. So who will they see? Who is this hero? It is Jesus Christ as this mighty, majestic son of man. They will see him. And you know what? They will see him in person. They won't just see 
his spirit, they won't just see some representative of him. No, they will see the Son of Man. The God-Man. The divine and the human, Jesus Christ in one. They will see him physically. They will see his bodily form. And when they look at him, they will be able to see him clearly. He's distinguishable, recognizable. That's the hero. And how will will he appear in splendor? We come to the fourth point, the splendor, the splendor. Christ in his second coming, it's going to be an extraordinary sight, splendor, sovereign. Read verse 26. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in what? In clouds. Now, you study this carefully and you compare it with the other Gospels and every other passage that refers to the cloud, you'll find this collected it together for you. In Matthew 24, 30, it says, He's coming on clouds. Daniel 7, we read it, it says, He's coming with clouds. Mark here says, in clouds. So you put, you put them all together and you just view and everybody's looking at it from different angles and different dimension, but what it really means is that Jesus, when he comes back, he'll be surrounded by this supernatural, amazing kind of cloud. may not be the same cloud that we see today, but it's going to be a really amazing cloud. How do we know? Because wherever he goes, he's enveloped, he's bathed in this wonderful cloud. Perhaps this cloud of Shekinah glory that um, came into the temple in the Old Testament. But what does this cloud depict? We'll continue with the Gospel of Mark, and he continues on Mark, and he tells us. I believe it depicts what he says it depicts, with great power and glory. Not just power, but great power. And look at Matthew, they agree that it's not just Great power, they also add the word great to glory. Great power and great glory. The clouds will depict his great power and great glory. Two, two aspects. What's the difference between great power and great glory? Let me give you a a nice contrast between the two. Great glory means the infinite beauty that Jesus will display. The great power, it speaks of the infinite control that Jesus will exercise. Great glory speaks of when Jesus will lift off the veil for everyone to begin to see his infinite greatness, infinite perfection, infinite worth. Great power means that At that time of Jesus' second coming, it speaks of when Jesus will flex his mighty, eternal, and incomprehensible strength to do what he wills to do. The glory speaks of who he is, and power would speak of what he will do. 
the light of Christ's face that will be too dazzling to behold is his great glory. And the arm of his strength that will be too great for anyone to restrain or to oppose is his great power. Now, I believe that there is nowhere in the scripture that would describe this both glory and power of Jesus' second coming than Revelation 19. And I do want to ask you, I know I told you from the beginning, I'm really sorry for um, the troublesome that... (laughs) But please now go to Revelation 19 and we want to enjoy, we want to delight on what the scripture says of the second coming of Christ, zooming in into his glory and his power. Revelation 19. Now by the time we reach this Revelation 19 event, the church would have been raptured seven years earlier. We are the the bride of Christ and we're going to be in heaven. We're going to be enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we come to verse 11. And remember, while everything is black, in verse 11, John says, I saw heaven open. So everything is black, pitch black. And John looks up and he sees heaven cracked open. Then he says, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. Who is it that it will be seated in that white horse? None other but Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he's called faithful, meaning he's faithful to his people. And it's called that he's called also true because he's true to his word. He's true to his promises. And what will be the purpose of his coming? It says, and in righteousness he judges and what? Wages war. People have no idea how Christ will come back. And they paint him like this sissy, white. Man with blue eyes and I have no idea why he puts in his hair to make it so shiny. And so almost like a Jesus with no spine. He will come to wage war. You see, in Jesus' first coming, Jesus came to save his enemies, but in his second coming, he will come to slaughter his enemies. When he came the first time, he came as a lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. But in his second coming, he will come as a lion of Judah to devour his sinners, the sinners that will never trust him. That's why it says in verse 12, we continue on reading, it says, His eyes are a flame of fire. Flame of fire. This speaks of the fury, wrath, that hot anger against those that will reject him. Speaks that as though that nothing will escape his incredible. It says, and in his head 
Then we continue reading and it's as though that John now is squeezing his eyes and he's kind of trying to read something that is written. And it says there, a name was written on him which no one knows except himself. It speaks of his power and glory are so unfathomable, unimaginable. No matter how much we study and meditate on the power and and the glory of Christ, brothers, even the best of us wouldn't be even able to scratch the surface as to know the the fullness of Christ's power and glory. And there will be waves upon waves of indescribable brilliance radiating from Christ on that day. Verse 13, and he continues on, John, and he says that when Jesus will come, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. Well, obviously, this cannot be his blood. It would have dried up 2,000 years and plus whatever is coming of many years before his second coming. This is not his blood. This is according to verse 15 the blood of those who will reject him, those who refuse for Christ to reign over them. He will tread over them, and he will crush them, and he will squash them as you squash a puny insect. His royal robe will be stained. What the text is saying. I'm not making it up. Verse 14. Continue reading and it says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. This is such a glorious procession. Now, who are these armies? that will come with Christ. Well, if you read it in context, you'll find that these are the saints, the blood-bought people from all ages. All ages. There will be the church. There will be the Old Testament saints. There will be the tribulation saints that were martyred at that time. Now we're all going to descend down with Christ in this wonderful procession, along with his mighty angels. Now pay careful attention to this. It says, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And then it also says, and they were following him on white horse. Well, sorry, white horses. So Jesus will be ahead and they will be behind and he will have his robe dipped in blood, but what about their robes, their clothes? will be white and clean, right? So who will, who will be doing a slaughtering? Not the armies. They didn't come for battle. 
It's Christ that will be doing the slaughtering. You see, the saints that are going to be coming down with Christ, it's, it's not that Christ somehow needs their help. No, they're not coming to help him. They're coming to reign with him. Jesus never needed anyone's help. When he saved the world, he saves the world alone. He saves the world by his power so to get all the glory. And when he comes back, he will come back to wage war and he will defeat his enemies by his power to display his glory. So the scene, what's the scene like? world is in a state of emergency. People are dying out of terror. And God is keeping whoever is left alive just to witness his coming. And in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this total blackness, the brilliance of Jesus' glory will light up the sky and every eye will see him. See him how? See him powerfully bolting out of heaven, galloping on his white horse with inflaming fire. This is great. This is great power. This is splendor. He will appear in blazing, infinite, unveiled splendor. Glory like never seen before. He's unveiled Shekinah glory. For the first time, will be unveiled in utter majesty. He will come down the greatest display of sheer glory that this world has ever seen before. And it will be like a parade in a procession of a victorious king surrounded by ear-piercing shouts of praise by all these saints and angels that are coming down with him. It will be such a dramatic entrance on the stage of this world. That's the spirit. Jesus, he won't show his power and glory only by defeating his enemies, but also in gathering of his, of his elect at that time. We come to the fifth and the final point, the rescue mission. Second coming is for a clear intention here, and that is to rescue, to rescue the elect. So back to Mark 13, and Mark says in verse 27, then he will send forth the angels. The angels, we know who the angels are. These are the mighty beings that will descend with Christ from heaven. These mighty angels, the Bible tells us that they would be flapping their wings in heaven, joyfully praising Christ, always worshiping Christ, ready at any moment just with a, a flick of finger to eagerly serve Christ. And as Jesus makes his way to Armageddon and to wage war, he will give his order to, to his angels at once so that he would dispatch his angels. And it says there, gather together his elect. His elect. Not those who think that they are Christians, but not elect. Not those who show signs as though that they are followers of Christ, but in their hearts are really not. Now, those who come to, Christ, to church, but those who have already come to Christ, gather 
together his elect. So like flying rockets, these mighty angels will launch themselves to rescue the elect from where? From the four winds. What does it mean, four winds? It's just a metaphorical way of saying from the four corners of the earth. North, east, south, west. So the angels will be flying everywhere and they will be grabbing all the elects from, from every tribe, every tongue and every people and, and every nation. And just to make sure that we know that these angels will cover every square inch of planet earth, Jesus threw another metaphor and he says there, from the furthest end of the earth to the furthest end of heaven. Basically, what Jesus is saying is from everywhere. And you will find these angels will be hovering everywhere. They will pick up every elect from the caves where they were hiding out of fear from the Antichrist. Those that were lying under their beds or caving in in the vanity of in their roofs. That they will lift up the elect from every prison cell where they're incarcerated. And they will fly from Alaska to New Zealand, from, from the North Pole to the South, from Russia all the way to America. They will not leave any stone unturned. They will gather all God's elect. And I will present them before Christ. How beautiful will that day be for those who belong? When all of God's people will be assembled together in Jerusalem. And then Jesus begins to usher them to enter into his kingdom. How glorious will that day be? Because on that day, they will understand what Jesus meant when he said, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. The second coming of Christ will mark the first day of a new era. Where all of God's people will be one. All the redeemed. Right from the beginning of time up to the very last elect that will be rescued by those angels. Rejoicing together. Fulfilling God's purpose. And they, not only will they behold the glory and the power of Christ on that day only. But they will continue and forever. Behold the power and the glory of Christ. Let me give you a list of things that Christ will do on earth to show the divine power that he possesses. I'll give you three things that he will do that will cause his people to exalt him and to praise him. First, he will destroy his enemies. By his power, he will destroy his enemies. He will cast the Antichrist into the lake of fire. He will bind Satan for 1,000 years. And he will throw all unbelievers into hell. Second, by his power, he will restore this devastated, miserable earth. So Jesus will restore the earth to the pre-flood era, reshaping mountains, 
by his power, he will resize hills and valleys. He'll be adjusting rivers and seas. And for 1,000 years, by his power, there will be no more flood. And he will hold back starvation. You won't need to go to Queensland for good weather. Because Jesus will perfect the temperature across the whole globe. Thirdly, by his glorious, amazing power, he will establish his rule on earth. Those tribulation elect whose lives will be spared, those who would be gathered by the angels, definitely not us, because if, if you're a believer, you will be raptured. Perhaps if Jesus does come back very, very soon to rapture his people and you're an unbeliever, perhaps that may be one of you, tribulation elect, um, whose lives will be spared, they will inherit the earth based on nations and tribes. And they will continue to populate the earth for 1,000 years. Let me give you a quote of a beautiful passage in Isaiah 65, verse 20. It says this about those elect that will go into the new earth. And it says, sorry, the, the, the renewed, restored earth. And it says, no longer will there be in it an infant who, who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. Now, those of us who would have been resurrected, gone up to heaven with a resurrected body, by the power of Christ, when we come down, we will rule with Christ, governing those nations, enforcing his law and order. And even, and finally, by that same power of Christ, this is what's going to happen to the animal kingdom. I'm going to read to you Isaiah 11, 6-9, and we'll finish here. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling, and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. How beautiful. How wonderful. Brothers, sisters, let us focus on that when Christ will come back. Let every decision we make in this side of eternity, on this side, in this age, in this era, be a decision that is connected to this coming day. Let us not pursue gold and silver that will burn and turn into rubble. Let us focus on that day. Let us commit our hearts to Christ, who alone has all power and all glory and all worth for us to live for 
every moment of our lives. Brother, sister, this day is coming. It is coming. And while our tent, this body of us, of ours, is decaying, and we know that, we can see and we can feel the hurt, and we know the, the anxiety that is going around us because other people who do not put the trust in Christ are going through exactly the same thing. But let us be different. Let us be holy. How? How do we be holy? How do we focus on that day and therefore, as a result, live in consistent life in according to this day? To give Christ all of that. That our relationships before Him. Believers, get out of faith. Unbelievers, share the gospel. And consider and count every moment that is not spent for that will help you to live this 1,000 years with Christ in such a delightful way. Any moment that is not spent for that, let it be considered as a wasted moment. For those of us in this world, they have not come to Christ. I pray that God would have mercy upon you. I pray that you would not stay such a long, miserable life full of sin until that day where you would see him face to face. And like what we read in the scripture today in the morning by our brother Jean, that every knee will bow and you will bow down before him just before he would just cut your head off. And then throw you into hell. I pray that this would never happen. I pray that you would not see him as a lion that will devour you. I pray that today that you would see him as a lamb that shed his blood on the cross. So that to save you, cry out to him. Beg God to have mercy upon you. Open your heart. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ. As your Lord and your Savior. And then, and from this moment onwards, live for Him. Live for Him as though He is the one that will be coming back to rapture and to take you up to heaven and to live forever with Him, enjoying His glory and His power forever.